Uh, Father God, we just thank you uh, for the opportunity to come together. Father, we thank you for, uh, for the traditions and what we can learn and what we can glean from them. Father, let the, uh, let the traditions always be um, something that points us to you and to, uh, to what you mean to us and what your son Yeshua means to us. Don't let them uh, ever become something that is uh, bigger than what you intended. And so we pray for that uh, tonight and we pray for the message as, uh, as it gets delivered tonight. Let us ask the questions that need to be asked and let us have the ears and the hearts to understand. So I'm Michael. If you don't know, I am teaching tonight, and I am blind, so you don't get confused. Because I do write on the board sometimes, and it freaks people out. Because they're like, how can that blind guy write on the board and write so well? And some people have even said he writes better than the rabbi. So, Rabbi Heim, that is. So, just to, just to, I wanted to, to preface you with that. So, um, this is the eighth session. I don't know... I'm curious, does anybody have something to share briefly, very briefly, of something they've learned while taking this class? Something, maybe an insight they didn't know before, or one of the customs they liked us talking about? Just looking for some brief feedback here. I'm trying to remember the name, um, but the, the scroll um, that's on the doorway, it's on the doorposts. The mezuzah. I could not think of, I kept wanting to say mes, the, with the snakes, and I knew that wasn't. You know, Medusa, not thank to be you. Right, and Medusa, I knew I was going to get it wrong, so I just don't even don't even Medusa, Right. <laughs> okay, so mezuzah. And, and was there something you liked particularly about that? Or? Well, what I, found, um, what I found fascinating about it um, was the, uh, the importance uh, of uh, remembering and keeping it writing it on our doorpost and what we say um, are part of our service every week and, and how uh, we care how that is carried out in that in that tradition okay and I, I thought that was interesting any anyone else briefly want to share a new insight something they've learned over the last seven weeks oh yeah no just a basic uh, understanding of a bat mitzvah and a bar mitzvah okay that uh, probably been 50 years since uh, I'd, I'd attended one so it's quite, quite interesting and, and quite. Uh, it was just good to understand what, what the rite of passage meant. Thank you, thank you. So the reason why I ask is because I feel like we've just been scratching the surface. A lot of these traditions, we could probably do um, two or three classes on some of them because the extensiveness of learning what we've learned is is so full. There's so much more that's there. And I hope that this uh, class has benefited you guys talking and covering the customs. One of the most important things that we look at in Scripture is how do we make an application? It's very good to know this information. It's very good to um, observe it, for instance. But it's something that in all of Scripture, one has to know how to do. And when we talk about learning scripture, what I learned, I learned there were three things. There was observation, what you see. Sometimes that's like who and what and all those different where, when, why. 
And then there's interpretation. How do we understand what it means? And then most importantly is the application. How do I make an application to this in my life? How do I live this particular thing out? And sometimes it's difficult because some of the things... Now, some of the things in this particular class, they might be pretty easy. For example, maybe you don't have a daughter who's bar or bat mitzvah age or a son. Maybe you don't have a child, so you don't have to worry about Brittany law or circumcision. You're not getting married anytime soon. And maybe you don't need to worry about those, but there are still areas that we have been talking about, like Tevilah, believer's immersion, or maybe for some of you, that might be a stretch or something you want to learn about because it's something good when someone comes to faith of learning what it's about and what kind of statement that person is making publicly, as well as something like Kashrut that we covered a little bit last week of learning the differences of what food is proper and what food is not proper by God's standards. So there's there's some things, but when we look at application, it's really important to to talk about in terms of learning what <clears throat> learning what is the way we follow the scripture. How do we follow the scripture? How do we do what we should be doing in a sense? And it's important. This is a question that was going through even the disciples' minds. And the first scripture I have up on your handout is 1 Corinthians 11, 1 and 2. And Art, would you read that for us? Okay. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 2. Paul was writing to the Corinthians, a, a congregation that was struggling with many different issues, and when he gets to chapter 11, he makes an interesting statement. Try to imitate me, even as I myself try to imitate the Messiah. Now I praise you, because you have remembered everything I said, told you, and observed the tradition just the way I taught them unto you. So this scripture is dealing right with where we're talking about. How do we apply things? How do we imitate them or follow after them. Does that, it's some, some of your versions may have the word follow. Follow me as I follow the Messiah. Live these ways as I live after the Messiah. Whatever it is in this particular situation, the Rabbi Paul was wanting the congregation to understand that they had learned tradition through him and they weren't to follow Paul, but they were to first and foremost follow the Messiah. Because that's who Paul was wanting them to follow. And there were certain things that, uh, that came not just from the scriptures, but that came from tradition. And he goes on in this chapter to talk about two of those specific things. He talks about head coverings, and he talks about the Lord's Supper, how they were handling those two particular issues. And throughout the rest of this part of the book of Corinthians... Paul talks more and more about how they followed traditions. For example, how was it proper to speak in tongues? How was it proper to use the gifts of the Spirit? And so it's something that really applies of learning how to make an application. Learning how to make an application and doing it the right way. And application is important because 
we know that God wants the word to become real to us. That's why at times in the Torah service, I'll quote from Luke 11, 27 and 28, where Yeshua says, Blessed are those that hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are the hearers, but blessed not just of the hearers, but the doers of the word. The doers of the word from Romans 2, 13. And those are the important things. It's not enough that when we stand up and have the formal Torah service or when we have a stand-up and Bible study, it's important that you know how to put things into practice and do more than just learn about them, but put them into your life, learn how to observe them. So when we talk about observance, it's important that we look at Acts chapter 15. And I'd like someone who's up for reading. We're going to read verses 1 to 21. And maybe Steve Cable, are you up for reading tonight, brother? Yep, yep, Acts 15. Acts 15, verses 1 to 21. Okay. Now some men coming down from Judea were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When Paul and Barnabas had a big argument and debate with them, the brothers appointed Paul and Barnabas with some others from among them to go up to Jerusalem to the emissaries and elders about this issue. So they were sent on their way by the Antioch community. They were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the community and the emissaries and the elders. They reported all that God had done in helping them. But some, belonging to the party of the Pharisees, who had believed, stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the Torah of Moses. The emissaries and elders were gathered together to examine this issue. After much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God chose from among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the message of the good news and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving them the Ruach HaKodesh, just as he also did for us. He made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts through faith. Why then do you put God to the test by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But instead, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Yeshua in the same way as they are. Then the whole group became silent and were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were describing in detail all the signs and wonders God had done among them, among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, Jacob answered, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described how God first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. The words of the prophet agreed, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, namely, all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says Adonai, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, I judge not to trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but to write to them to abstain from the contamination of idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what is strangled, and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has had in every city those who proclaim him, 
since he is read in all the synagogues every Shabbat. Thank you, Steve. Now, <clears throat> something that's very interesting here at the beginning, these brothers just appear out of what it seems like nowhere, because we hadn't heard of these brothers before up until this point. But it's just kind of an interesting observation here. Does anybody know how many different sects of Judaism were going on in the first century? Well, some counts have it as many as maybe 18 or 19. There's quite a few sects. I mean, the one we care about the, the most is which one? Messianic. The Messianic, right? The ones following the Messiah. And our Bible tells us of at least three different sects. Does anyone know? The names of the different sects of Judaism? The Pharisees. Okay. The Sadducees. And who else? The legalists. The Judaizers. Well, the Judaizers? Right. Okay. Well, that's okay. So the Judaizers, I don't know that we would necessarily classify them as a, a sect of Judaism. They might have been proselytizing. But we see here in the text that from verse 5 that these people that are, that are quote-unquote, maybe that were what we would call Judaizers, they were of the sect of the Pharisees from verse 5 and learned this. But <clears throat> there's also another one that maybe, I don't know if someone did say it, the Essenes. Does everyone know about the Essenes yes. that live down in Qumran? And they're, they're talked about a little bit in the, in the New Testament. But specifically, those are the three sects that we hear the most about, as well as Messianic. So we have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Does anyone know what the Pharisees believed? Or what were some of the things that the Pharisees are recognized with? They believed in the resurrection, yes. They keep the law. They were keepers of the law. And and most sects, not all the sects were, but the three sects we've mentioned, or I should say the four, are definitely keepers of the law. They all believed in keeping the law, the four that we're mentioning. But the Sadducees was more political. The Sadducees were definitely political. And what were they associated with? The temple. The temple. They were associated with the temple and the things that were going on specifically connected with worship. And so they had a strong belief of no resurrection, as we talked about, as well as they did not believe too much outside of the Torah. They believed in almost the Torah exclusively because that's where their ministry spawned from. Now, I want to go back to the Pharisees because it's important to understand the Pharisees were everywhere. The Pharisees are equated with the synagogue. But do they wear different garbs, different clothing? Not necessarily, no. But if you're a Sadducee and you work in the temple, you might. You might have different clothing than maybe a Pharisee, for example. But we know some things about the Pharisees. They had, they wore the best phylacteries in some cases. Those were the prayer boxes, and, and they 
They said they made their ziziot extra long, some of them. Okay, not all of them, but some of them. But it's important to understand that if your city had a synagogue, more than likely, you guys had some Pharisees operating in it. There were Pharisees operating. It wasn't something that was exclusive to Jerusalem. But this particular sect that is saying that people need to be circumcised was from Judea, was from Jerusalem. And that's an important note to make. Because a lot of times, what we like to do is, not only do we equate the Pharisees with that, but we also equate them as hypocrites and all the negative. And they tend to get a bad rap at times. The Pharisees tend to get a bad rap that everything the Pharisees did was wrong. Everything, every Pharisee had to be a hypocrite. Every Pharisee had to be this. And, and so it's important to notice that this particular group that was strongly observant, that felt that Gentiles needed to keep the Torah, they were coming strictly from Jerusalem and from Judea. And that's an important point. So this group, Paul and Barnabas, have a problem with. Now, where are Paul and Barnabas at this time? Does anybody know? Any clue? I think you're in Jerusalem. No. Antioch. Paul and Barnabas started out in Antioch. So something was happening in Antioch for the people of Jerusalem to come down and want to come and be a part of this congregation. This was the happening congregation. People were curious what was going on here, and that's why this group is coming down. Remember, Jerusalem, you, to go to Jerusalem, you always go up. But if you're leaving Jerusalem, you're always coming down. So they're coming down to Antioch. And what ends up happening is a group then is sent to Jerusalem to go and find out what is going to be the rule of way we're going to follow things. How are we going to know the difference? And then you see, where do Paul and Barnabas go through? On their way to Jerusalem. Samaria. Samaria and Phoenicia is, yep. is one of the areas as well. Yes. Syria. Yes, Syria. So they're going through more than one area to go back down to Jerusalem to be able to talk. Antioch was, I believe, located in Caesarea Philippi. So it was up toward the northern end of, of Israel. And so, at this point, when they come back down, there's a big discussion, and we have the discussion of what's happening and what people are going to do because of everything that's being talked about. Now, I talked about Judaism because I think it's fair for you to understand those things. Now, I want to get into a little bit of the Greek words because they're important. We, we talked about there are possibly these four groups of Jews, and out of the Gentiles, Gentiles is the word, we have several words for Gentile in your notes, and the first word is the, the common word that's probably most commonly translated Gentile, and it's ethnos, the Greek word ethnos. And that just has to be doing someone who's a non-Jewish person. They can be any kind of race, any kind of tribe. But then we get to an understanding of 
within Judaism, there were three types of Gentiles. Three types of Gentiles. The first one is the proselyte. Now, what made the proselyte different? They converted to Judaism. I think I spelled it wrong, but proselyte. They converted. What did they, that mean? They practiced Judaism, and what was the main conversion ceremony? Circumcision. They were circumcised. They were circumcised. Now, the next person, and you can see, um, even they came to faith. If you look in your notes, it talks about Acts chapter 6, and I believe it's verse 4 or 5. Verse 5, and Nicholas is a proselyte. He's someone that had converted to Judaism, but then he became messianic. And he didn't stop being a proselyte at that point. They didn't call him Nicholas the messianic proselyte. They just called him Nicholas the proselyte. So he still was a proselyte, even though he had stepped into being part of messianic Judaism. Then the second one is the God-fearer. What what was a God-fearer like? Does anybody know? One that feared God, yes! The sample sample is the the centurion where Peter went to the house. He was giving us, he was was a good man. He got believed, the Roman Roman centurion, Caesarea. Okay, so Cornelius specifically. What does it say about Cornelius? Let's let's read Acts 10, 1 and 2. Because it'll give us a small snapshot here. Of what is Cornelius like as a God-fearer? What kind of Gentile is this guy? Um, there was a man in Caesarea okay. named Cornelius, a Roman army officer in what was called the Italian Regiment. He was a devout man, a God-fearer, as was his whole household. He gave generously to help the Jewish poor and prayed regularly to God. Thank you. So what are some of the things that equate Cornelius that makes him a God-fearer? He gives to the poor. He gives to the poor. He's devout. He prays. He prays. And most importantly, his whole household. He's very generous. His whole household followed the Lord. That's a big statement, right? Not everyone could say, hey, This whole house is going to follow the Lord this way. Now, the difference basically between a God-fearer and a proselyte is he is not circumcised, though. Why not? Is there any any question of why uh, someone maybe couldn't get circumcised? Or, well, in in Cornelius's case, what did he do for a living? Roman Roman soldier. So, could a Roman soldier take on? an oath to serve the Lord, and an oath to serve Caesar. That would be real problematic. That would be real problematic. So these different people, the God-fearers, they would go to the synagogue. They were very involved in the synagogue. They did different things like giving to the poor. They came for prayer. They sat in one place that was different in the synagogue. Okay, But they were still associated with it, even though they weren't fully observant. 
And as you go back and read the book of Acts at some point, look at all the times when the Jews rejected Paul's message, whether it was Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Timothy, whoever they were rejecting, Paul said, fine, we'll go talk to these guys over here. They're the God-fearers. They're the God-fearers. And many times they wanted to know what Paul was talking about. They wanted to know what Paul was talking about. Now, the third group is the barbarian. Mm -hmm. And you may even say, why even bring them up, Michael? What? What's the point? And, and that's why I have Romans 1.14. Karen, would you read that for us? Romans 1.14. Both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. What was Paul a debtor to them as? Did he owe them some money or what? They protect him. No. No, it's the gospel message. The gospel message was to reach everyone, whether they were a Greek speaker, whether they were the proselyte, the God-fearer, or the barbarian. And the barbarian was at times almost even hostile toward God. Sometimes they're seen as uncivilized or an idolater, frankly. They would have been, but Paul says we still have an obligation to try to reach these people. I am in debt to reach them. And that's kind of his heart when it came to outreach. And the reason why I talk about all these Gentile people groups as well as the Jews, not everybody came from every single perfect background. A lot of times when it comes to observing the Torah, most people think it should be very simple and easy, and we should be able to be able to have a cookie-cutter following, a cookie-cutter observance of how we're going to follow everything. And the fact is, we have several types of Gentiles we've been talking about, several types of Jews, and everybody came with different belief systems, different ideas of how you observe. And so there's always these degrees of what do you observe and what do you not observe. And that's why it's important to take this little side trip and say, here's what kind of Jews were walking around. Here's what kind of Gentiles were walking around. It wasn't just simple to say, everybody do it this way, and everybody was going to do it that way. Because sometimes I think we sometimes have the stick mentality. You will do it this way or else. And that's not the way that God wants people to come. God draws people from different backgrounds. And it's the same among us. You might have Catholic brothers here. You might have Protestant brothers here. You might have people from all kinds of forms of Judaism here. And not everyone's going to come to the Messiah with the same idea of how to observe and how to follow the word of God. Well, there was whatever whatever stage of life that you had reason to. I mean, Paul was a traveler. He went around traveling. And we, we talked about, and we prayed for Rabbi Haim. He's going to Israel. He might run into people that are actually hostile toward Israel. 
he might run into people that are hostile toward Jewish people. And the fact is, you still have an obligation to pray for them, and if God leads, share the gospel with them. And that's what Paul's getting at in Romans 1.14. That's why he's saying that it's important to understand that it's not simple or easy when it comes to observing. Now, Peter, I like what Peter has to say in this passage as we go back to Acts 15. Peter talks about what God has been doing through the different groups. And it's interesting because Peter wants us to understand that each person, whether they're messianic, how they became a believer was somewhat different. But the same, there were some commonalities. And he parks on those commonalities of being able to say, this is how we know they did this. They heard the message and they trusted. Everyone who's here, I hope, has heard God's message that the Messiah has come, that he's brought redemption, and that you can have life through him. That's the basic message. And if you trust and believe in that message, then God will raise you up in the latter days and he will bring you into a place of victory in your life right now. That's ultimately the message. Now, not only does Peter say this, he says, God knows their hearts and he's given them the Spirit. He's given them the Spirit. This is important because when you receive the Holy Spirit, it's God's way of making a seal upon you. God makes his stamp on you in a sense. He makes sure that you know who he is. And because Peter talks about this, because he saw what happened last week as we talked about in Acts chapter 10, that the idea of the Spirit coming on you, that there's no distinction anymore. God does not look at one group and say, this group is different in distinction when it comes to salvation. Everyone can come to have the same salvation. And then he talks about cleansing in their hearts. He talks about that there is no distinction, like I said earlier. There's, and, and this is the important part. If God has done this by giving us a spirit, why do we want to make something man-made and make a yoke again for the Gentiles? And, and he's very adamant here of something we couldn't even keep ourselves. We couldn't even keep this perfectly ourselves. But God's already justified them. And so it's important that the Jews, if the Jews couldn't keep it, why would we want to put another yoke on them that they had a hard time keeping? Now, what's also interesting is what Jacob or Yaakov, depending on how you say his name, either one's okay, or if you even say James, we won't shoot you. Okay. <laughs> James is okay to say, <clears throat> but actually it is translated as Jacob, so that you know it's just one of those things of truth that we associate as Messianic believers, is Jacob's okay to have, but um, because of the influence of the King James Bible, getting on a soapbox here, they said, oh yeah, King James, uh, Jesus had a brother named James. And after that, it was always translated James after that. So, But 
<clears throat> in a sense, there were other passages that James talks about here. That James saw what was taking place was God's will. And specifically, he quotes Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. Do I have someone who would like to read that? And I'm drawing a blank on who's in the room, so don't be afraid to, to jump up and read it. Amos chapter 9 and verses 11 and 12. Because this is the specific passage that James is quoting, talking about a time when God was really going to be harsh and bring about destruction. He said there would be a shaking, a shaking of all peoples, and Israel would get shaken as well to distinguish who was really belonging to God and who wasn't. And then at the end of that shaking, we have verses 11 and 12, which say, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord, that doeth this. So what was, why was God going to reestablish his tabernacle? What was the main reason? Well, it's so that people like you and me, and heathens, Gentiles, whether it's the God-fearers, or the barbarians, or the proselytes, they could all come and be a part of that. They could all come and be a part of that. And it, it, it kind of gives an extension... Uh, the other two passages in here, because Isaiah 65 talks about a time when those who were not called by my name would seek after me. People that were non-Jews. This is obviously Gentiles. And then, just a little clarification, Isaiah 16.5 talks about the tabernacle or the tent of God being set up so that God would be able to judge and it's used there, the tent of David. Why the tent of David, of all things? Because that was the important. He established the first um, tabernacle. He, he, he established what kind of tabernacle? A tent. What kind of tent did David establish? Uh, a worship tent. A worship tent. It was a worship tent. That's basically correct. David took the ark, if you remember back in 2 Samuel, and he danced before the ark and took it. And he took it six steps, and then he made a sacrifice, and took it another six steps, made a sacrifice. But, I mean, David brought the ark to the tent. He brought it to a tent. And this is why I believe it is called the tent of David. Now, in, um, in, in, uh, excuse me, in the passage from Amos, it's actually the word sukkah. The Sukkah of David, which will be celebrating Sukkot in the fall. But then we have later in the Isaiah passage, it's called the Ohel. Ohel, which you have the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting. It's this, two different words for tent, but it, there is a slight difference there. And I don't know, I'm not as good with the nuances of Hebrew, but there are slight differences there between these two passages, if that makes sense. I'm going to go, go then. In the past, like Abraham set up an altar, Jacob set up an altar, and then God said, then they felt that that wasn't sufficient, just a, a, a stone. There would be more to the 
God. And then God told him specifically what he wanted within his sanctuary. Yes. He wasn't going to settle for just the rock. Well, we have to remember that the reason why David had to set up the tent that way is because the ark had fallen out of favor with the Levites. With the, or, I'm sorry, not the Levites, but the Kohanim, the priests, because they had tried to use it the wrong way. They thought if we take the ark into battle, it'll act just like a good luck charm for us, and we'll get the victory no matter what. In spite of their thinking, that's not what happened. They ended up getting beaten, and they ended up losing the ark. So remember, when David brings it back, it's not to say that he's going to establish a whole new side of worship or a whole new side of things, because he saw that the, the ark needed a holy place. And that's what he was doing, is bringing it back and making it set apart, making it important again. But then he, he realizes later, when we look at 2 Samuel 6 and 7, he wants a home. He wants a physical place, uh, a, a, a house in which people can come. And that's what Solomon eventually ended up doing. So, <clears throat> as we look at, at this idea of Acts 15, and we come to kind of the conclusionary points, it says that James finally makes the statement that we're not to put any kind of... If, if God is doing this work, we're not to stop it from happening. And maybe, you know, I would challenge each of us. It's important to know what role the Gentiles play. Sometimes we're very Israel-focused, and that's good and important because we're Messianic. And that's where we're supposed to be focused on Israel. But God has always wanted to do something with the Gentiles. And throughout the Tanakh, not in just these three passages that are in your notes, but there are several places where God is going to do a new thing with the Gentiles. And he wants to bring the, uh, the Gentiles along. Whether it's Isaiah 56 and the Gentiles coming and making it a house of prayer where their prayers can be heard, or whether it's Deuteronomy chapter 4, where God says when you're surrounded by other nations and they want to know about God, you tell them about God. Whatever the case is, there's always these ideas of the Gentiles were there to be poured into because God wanted to reach them as well. It, it was. It was to go and it was to reach everybody. So we don't want we don't want to ever create any kind of obstacle by which God wants a Gentile to come closer to Him. If God is drawing people to Him, we don't ever want to make something difficult and say, you know, everyone should be stopped from coming to God. But at the same time, there are abstinences of things that we have to have. And so that's where James and the elders make the letter. And we, we talked about most of these in verse 20 last week and talking about the differences of that there was to be no kind of food that was offered to idols. There was no sexual immorality. There was no animals that were strangled or blood. Did you have a question, Floyd? No. Okay. I was so, agreeing with you. Oh, yes. So... Part of 
the understanding in all this is also wanting to look at the passage in Acts 21. Acts 21 has a different nuance to things, but it's there because God wants us to understand things, the problem from the Jewish side in a sense. Because Jews have a responsibility too of not teaching Gentiles the wrong things, but teaching them the proper things that have been talked about here. And I believe this is an extension of what Matthew 5.19 says, that it doesn't, it, um, whosoever, whosoever keeps and teaches to do my commandments will be called great in the kingdom of God. But whoever breaks and teaches others so will be called least in the kingdom of God. And so this is the same idea of coming forth. And we see in chapter 21, verse 25, the same type of um, abstinations that are put forth. That they were to keep from blood, they were to keep from strangled animals, as well as fornication and food offered to idols. So, <clears throat> I wanted to make some conclusions observing this. Because it's very easy to look at this whole text and say, well, Michael, you've done a good job, but... <laughs> but what about us that want to keep the Torah? You know, what about us that have chosen to keep the Torah? Because you've kind of made it sound like, you know, these people don't have to do very much. You're not putting much work for them to do. And I want to challenge us all to look at these things because I don't think it's easy on any any light thing to keep the Torah at all. So the first verse I want to look at in my conclusionary area is uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Hey, Michael, can I ask you? Sure. No, go ahead. The, um, the things you said right before that, some of the uh, parallels with, um, uh, with the teaching in, the, in the, uh, the Gospels, for instance, the Matthew passage about telling Gentiles, you know, what you just said. You mentioned Matthew 21, 25. I wonder what, what verse... It was Acts 21, 25, and then Matthew 5, 19. Okay. When you said 21, 25, that's referring to Acts 21, 25. I was that's referring yeah. that that is very parallel in the sense of saying the Gentiles are to keep these abstinences. And it follows very similar to what we see in Acts chapter 15, verse 20. Gotcha. I was, I was just reading your notes as Matthew 5.19 and Matthew 21.25, and I'm like, I didn't oh, see I'm sorry. Parallel, so that was just my That's mistake. a mistake. No, you didn't, you didn't put Matthew <laughs> there. It's just you didn't have any reference, but it was referring back to Acts. That's where I was confused. So. Okay, so okay. Thank you. <laughs> Another note, I'm just thinking, yes. Michael. All this was so so important because going to the Gentiles, the barbarians, whatever, they were in the midst of false gods all the time and sacrifices. And they had to stand strong to the Torah, the teaching of um, Leviticus and all, in order to know how what God expected of them as they took on commitment to follow the one true God. So what you're they, saying is that... They were always challenged. They're going to be challenged. Well, there's always going to be a challenge, and, and that's why I want to challenge everyone here tonight. I'm not necessarily giving everyone a free license saying, these are the only things you have to do. Because most of the people in our loving brothers in the Gentile Christian community, they look at Acts 15, 19, and Acts 21, 25... And they say, these are the basic requirements. This is all we have to do. 
This is all we have to do. And I'm not saying that. because, And, and that's why I have these conclusions. And I want to look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Karen, can you read that for us? Will someone turn to John 14, or John 15, verses 4 to 6, and someone else turn to John 21, 18 to 22? Okay, Philippians 1, 6. Philippians 1, 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Yeshua. So what does that mean? If God has started something, right? If this is a God-started thing. Okay. Yes, he will finish it. But what happens in the meantime? Does anybody else have something in their passage? Of, of Philippians 1.6? Right. He will complete it. That's very good. Complete. Continue to perform it. Continue to perform it. What I'm trying to look for here is the continuing is this is an expectation of growth is going to happen. In other words, when I look at this particular verse, I hope that what has taken place in my love relationship with the Lord will change. In other words, I'm going to be farther along than I was last year at this time. And next year, I'll be farther along than I am today. And that's what I want to challenge people with, because a lot of people look at this saying, if this is just the basic of all I have to do, they never look to grow. They never look to do any more with their faith. And God wants to always challenge our faith Cause our faith to be stretched and to grow. And sometimes it's painful when we grow. It's not always easy when we grow. But the point is, we're to grow. And we have to expect ourselves to grow. Both in maturity, both in unity, whatever it is. I hope people are growing in their salvation. And they can look at their own life and say, I've grown than what I was a year ago. John chapter 15 and verses 4 to 6. Stay united with me, as I will with you. For just as a branch can't put forth fruit by itself, apart from the vine, so you can't bear fruit apart from me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who stay united with me, and I with them, are the ones who bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can't do a thing. Unless a person remains united with me, he is thrown away like a branch and dries up. Such branches are gathered and thrown into the fire, where they are burned up. So, being united with Yeshua...
And we have two things happening here. What is the positive? What will happen? The bearing of fruit. How do we know people bear fruit? Well, we're called to be fruit inspectors, right? Has anybody ever heard that term? Rabbi David, I think, coined it first. But we're to be fruit inspectors. You will know them by their fruits, right? Uh, in fact, Yeshua uses that illustration. A bad tree cannot produce what? What about a good tree? It doesn't produce what? This is, would be some kind of confusion if these kind of things happened. But the bearing of fruit is something we can see, we can learn, we can know. What's the negative? What happens? Verse 6. What happens if we're not united with Yeshua? You die. You die, whether it's spiritually or physically. You fall off the vine. You're not connected anymore. And what happens to the disconnected branches? They're thrown in a fire, it says. They're thrown in a fire and burned up. They're not very useful anymore. No one wants to be there. So this is why it's so important if we're connected to the Lord, if we're going to apply the Lord's scriptures, we have to be united with the Lord. We have to be united with the Lord. Okay, John 8, 21, verses 18 to 22. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and, where, and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Okay. So what is this passage most well known for? Mind your own business. Well, that's, that's where we're going with it. But what, what is this passage best known for? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Right? Right. Over and over again, Peter's being told, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Do you love me? He's asked three times, right? But I want to follow on the two things that are mentioned here. The two times Yeshua says, follow me. And what does Peter say? What about John? What about John? This is typically where we are. What about Karen, Lord? What about Steve? What about David? What about Art? We're always focused on the wrong thing. It's follow Yeshua. 
And yes, mind your own business. That's what he wants Peter to do here. Follow him. But he's also saying, if you're not careful, you're going to be divided. Just like it says, the division came when Yeshua first, when he died. You know what I mean? They sort of scattered. Well, and, and he uses an illustration of the young and the old here. And he uses that for a reason. Because, you know, kids are the way they are for a reason. When they're young, they want to go run around and do what they want, right? And then when you get older, you find out, well, I can't do those things that I used to love to do. You know, I'm getting older. I'm starting to feel it in my bones. I can't, I can't climb 10 feet anymore, or I can't climb the stairs, whatever it is. And I'm just saying, the Lord wants us to be focused on him and follow him. It's not about John. It's about what Peter was to do, and Peter was to follow the Lord. Peter was just to follow him. And a lot of times, if we're focused on the Lord, we don't worry about what everyone else is doing, how they are following the Lord. That's really not for us to figure out. And Rabbi David will touch on this next week when he teaches on Romans chapter 14, because that's the ultimate of learning to mind your own business. But the point is, is that everybody needs to do these three things. They need to expect growth. Growth has to happen. In God's kingdom, it's an important covenant value. Either you grow, or as it says in the John passage, you die. It's that simple. So that way, if you're going to grow best, you stay connected to who? And you follow him and don't worry about anything else. Don't worry about anything else, how everyone else follows the Torah, and how everyone else is to do it. Are there any other questions about this um, area of Acts chapter 15, or Acts 21, or anything else we've been talking about? Who's the one that builds us? Yeshua is our builder. Right. He knows where we are fit best in his thing. But learning more of what he said, because he talked about all the, all the things we're going to, you know, mishaps we're going to have, all the falling away that we're going to feel. He said, beware, you know, stay strong in me, and how my father loves me, and loves you too. You know, totally united. We have to stay totally united. That's the key. Harry, could I impose on you to close us in prayer? If you're not comfortable, I totally understand. I, I didn't do it. Okay. And Father, we just come before you, Lord, and just appreciate this time. Lord, let it be good to share your word, to learn more about you, to be more connected to you. I thank you for this time. I thank you for all that you continue to provide for us, Lord. Let us pray that um, as we leave out of here, Just to meditate on what we just heard, Lord. And just pray for safe passes on. And just pray these names in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.